Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Today's episode is the fourth episode in a planned five-episode arc covering the American Revolution. If you're new to the series, I recommend going back and starting with episode 52, An Accidental Revolution. That will get you up to speed, or you can come in here in the middle of the story if you prefer. Where we left off at the end of the last regular episode, the American War for Independence has turned completely sideways. At least, that's how it has to feel if you were Prime Minister Lord North or one of the other British war planners. The war that began by mistake in 1775 had looked like a cakewalk. You have the British Empire with the world's greatest navy and one of the top five armies against some isolated North American colonies. This should be like the current NFL football champions playing against a mid-tier college team. You'd be impressed if the other team even scored a few points. Instead, the Americans have managed to notch a handful of early victories, but that alone would only be a temporary setback if it weren't for the fact that other countries are jumping into the war. The problem the British have right now is that they are the top dog in Europe, and there is a long list of countries that either have grievances against Great Britain or simply don't like the idea of one country becoming too powerful. In 1778, the French became the first world power to join the Americans. The Spanish joined in 1779. France is still salty about the loss of the French colonies in North America and would like nothing more than to get even. Spain, meanwhile, is hungry to recover Gibraltar, the small territory at the southern end of Spain that commands sea access to and from the Mediterranean. To combat the French and Spanish, Britain establishes an embargo. All ships bound for French and Spanish ports are subject to search and seizure by the Royal Navy. Britain's navy is her greatest strength, and as she often does, she's going to try and strangle her enemies into submission by cutting off their sea trade. But as sometimes happens, this embargo is going to backfire. See, so far... Most European countries have been tolerating Britain's ban on trade with the American colonies. Yes, you have the French and now the Spanish helping the Americans, and private Dutch traders have been running British blockades since the very beginning of the war. But there's a whole slew of smaller naval powers like Sweden and Austria and Denmark, Norway, and Russia that have completely steered clear of the Americas. These are either second- and third-rate military powers, or they're countries like Russia with big armies and small navies. They have little hope of challenging the Royal Navy and even less incentive to try. 
The young United States is relatively poor and has a relatively small population, which means that trade with the U.S. isn't worth all that much to begin with. And for another thing, British policy says that the U.S. is nothing more than a group of rebellious colonies, which, from an international perspective, makes the war an internal British affair. If you're one of these other countries, many of whom have had to deal with rebellious regions of their own, why would you want to set the precedent of interfering in other countries' internal affairs? But the British imposition of an embargo on French and Spanish trade is another matter entirely. France and Spain are not a collection of British colonies. They are sovereign kingdoms, and in addition to that, they are far from poor. They are quite wealthy, and these neutral countries, well, they want to trade with France and Spain. So when the British announce their embargo, it's not hard to understand why merchants throughout Europe become enraged. Who are the British to tell citizens of neutral countries who they can and can't trade with? And it's not just the merchant classes who are upset. The nobility right up to the crowned heads of state all have huge investments in international commerce. Well, on March 18, 1780, the most powerful of these neutral countries decides they're going to do something about it. Russian Empress Catherine the Great declares a policy of armed neutrality. She says that Russian ships will do business with France, Spain, and the United States, although they won't carry weapons or other military equipment. They will steer clear of any ports that are under an active British blockade, they're not going to actually initiate hostilities with the Royal Navy. They're going to try and steer clear, but otherwise they will trade as they see fit. At the same time, the Russian fleet will now maintain active patrols in the Mediterranean and the North Sea and will defend any Russian merchant ships in neutral waters. And furthermore... Russia is open to partnering with other countries who want to defend their right to free trade. And in August of 1780, the Scandinavian kingdoms of Sweden and Denmark-Norway sign an agreement with Russia to form what will become known as the League of Armed Neutrality. The premise behind the League is simple. Merchant ships from League countries will travel in convoys under the guard of military vessels. An attack on vessels from one country will be considered an attack on all. Now, officially, the League is 100% neutral. France has briefly declared an unenforceable embargo on Britain, and the League is going to ignore that just as much as they'll ignore the British embargo on France and other countries. But... The League of Armed Neutrality isn't really worried about French or Spanish or American interceptors seizing and searching their ships. They're worried about the British. On paper, the British should have no trouble continuing to enforce their embargoes. 
even if you combine all of the League navies together, they don't even form a fraction of the Royal Navy. If the British decide they're going to sink all of the League fleets, there's not much the Russians or anyone else can do about it. Catherine the Great herself will refer to the League as an armed nullity. But despite this, the British steer clear and they don't attack any League convoys. Because this isn't just about naval power. This is a game of geopolitical chicken. Keep in mind that not that long ago, in 1763, Europe ended the Seven Years' War, a long and bloody conflict that in many ways could be considered the First World War. 1763 is only 17 years ago. These countries are a lot like the countries in Europe in the interwar years in the 1930s. They're still dealing with the hangover of the last big war, and they're trying to avoid starting another one as much as possible. And unlike in the 1930s, there is no Adolf Hitler around to push anybody into all-out conflict. A good example of how eager the Europeans are to avoid escalation is the situation, or more accurately, the non-situation in Hanover. Hanover is a small but prosperous territory in northern Germany, just south of Denmark, and it's ruled by British King George III. During the Seven Years' War, the French and British had spilled a lot of blood fighting over Hanover. But throughout the American Revolution and the concomitant war with France, there is zero fighting in Hanover. The British are actually pulling troops out of Hanover throughout the war to deploy them elsewhere in their empire. Hanover is awfully close to France, it's even closer to Denmark-Norway, and it's not out of the question for Denmark or the Swedish or even the Russians or the French to attack it in the event of an all-out war. So if you're the British and you're thinking about impounding a neutral convoy, surely Hanover has to factor into your thinking. Attack the Russians, yes, you might have no trouble sinking their fleet, but a few months later, maybe a Russian army marches into Hanover. And throughout the war, Hanover remains quiet, as does the rest of continental Europe with the exception of Gibraltar. None of the European powers wants to trigger any fighting on the continent that could lead to another bloodbath like the Seven Years' War. At least, that is my interpretation. Thanks in large part to everyone's desire to mostly keep the peace, at least in Europe, the League of Armed Neutrality is a huge success. In 1781, Prussia and Austria join, as does Portugal. Prussia and Austria had been fighting against each other in the Seven Years' War not that long ago, and now here they are joining the League together. The Portuguese are British allies and have just gotten out of a war with the Spanish. 
So the fact that they're joining the league in part to defend their right to trade with the Spanish tells you just how much British trade policies are grating on the rest of Europe. The Ottoman Empire will join the League in 1782, and Naples will join in 1783. When this many countries are ignoring your embargo, it's safe to say your embargo isn't working. One country I haven't mentioned is the Dutch, and the Dutch are particularly eager to join the League of Armed Neutrality. They have already been sailing their ships in convoys, although the British have fired upon Dutch convoys and seized several Dutch ships during the course of the war. Furthermore, the Dutch and the British had had a special treaty allowing the Dutch to trade naval stores, which means tar, timber, that sort of thing, uh, with any world power, even if the British are at war with that power. And the Dutch have been using this loophole to buy naval stores from the Baltic countries and sell them to the French to help the French build their navy and make a fortune in the process. And the British go ahead and declare unilaterally that they are also putting embargo on the Dutch trade with the French. They're going to shut this down. Well, this abrogation of the Anglo-Dutch trade treaty is too much for the Dutch merchants to tolerate, and in December of 1780, the Dutch government officially petitions Catherine the Great to join the League of Armed Neutrality. But the British get wind of this, and they preemptively declare war on the Netherlands before the Russian empress can send her response. The British are very careful in their war declaration. They don't mention the Netherlands joining the League of Armed Neutrality at all, because that might antagonize the League. Instead, they focus on Dutch trade with the Americas. The British have even captured a Dutch ship carrying rough drafts for a secret free trade agreement between the Netherlands and the United States, and they use this as their main justification for war. And because the League of Armed Neutrality is a defensive pact and the Dutch and British are now already at war, Catherine the Great has no choice but to refuse the Dutch entry into the League. If the League were to admit them, well, it would amount to an offensive Russian declaration of war on Britain. And Catherine the Great's not going to do this. This marks the beginning of a parallel war to the American Revolution, the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War. And while the British are careful not to antagonize the League of Armed Neutrality, they will prosecute the war against the Dutch aggressively. They quickly snatch up a handful of Dutch Caribbean islands before local officials even know that they're at war with the British and they will seize a number of Dutch trading posts in India and the Indian Ocean over the next couple of years. The Fourth Anglo-Dutch War could be a whole episode on its own, but suffice it to say that from the end of 1780 onwards, the British will be fighting not only the Americans, French, and Spanish, but also the Dutch. 
And while the British will ultimately prevail against the Dutch, we're looking at the overextension of limited British resources. They're fighting in far too many places all at once. Despite this overextension, the British Empire will still seek to attack her enemies wherever and whenever they find the opportunity. It's tough to overstate just how powerful the Royal Navy is in the late 1700s, and the British are able to launch major operations in some surprising areas. Perhaps one of the most impressive is the San Juan Expedition, launched against the Spanish in Central America. The expedition is so named because the British intend to send a force up the San Juan River, which forms the border between the modern-day countries of Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Their goal is to seize the Fortress of the Immaculate Conception, which lies partway up the river along a set of rapids. Then they plan to proceed inland to take Lake Nicaragua and the town of Granada on its western shore before heading further west and north up the Tipitapa River to Lake Managua and taking the town of Leon which lies along a short road to the Pacific. Now, that's a lot of geography, but the long and short of it is that this route from the mouth of the San Juan River in the Caribbean to Lake Nicaragua to Lake Managua to an open road, this is currently the shortest direct route from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And it will remain so until the completion of the Panama Canal in the early 20th century. Now, transporting goods or men across this route is a headache. Right? It's not like the Panama Canal. You can't sail a ship the whole way. You can't even take a barge or a rowboat the whole way. You have to get out and walk. And if you're hauling cargo, this means unloading your ship onto wagons and taking them over land and then loading all your cargo back up at the Pacific. It's a pain. But... Under the correct circumstances, taking this overland route could make sense, and it could make sense here. And keep in mind that with the exception of Brazil, the Spanish Empire owns all of South and Central America and a decent chunk of North America. Conquering a strip of Central America will, number one, cut that territory in two, but Number two, it will allow British forces to transport cargo and men from the Atlantic to the Pacific without risking a long journey around South America. And finally, uh, this will allow British ships to more easily raid Spanish commercial shipping, uh, which is a big deal and a big part of the British war strategy. To attempt this expedition, Jamaican Governor John Dawling sends eight ships under the command of a 21-year-old Captain Horatio Nelson. In fairness, I should mention that while Nelson is in command of the ships, the expedition as a whole, most importantly the contingent of 3,000 redcoats, is commanded by Major John Paulson. 
Horatio Nelson is the only one of the two who goes on to become legendary, so there is that. The expedition leaves Jamaica on February 3, 1780. Although because of logistical delays, the ships won't anchor off Nicaragua until seven weeks later on March 24th. Horatio Nelson will lead the way, taking 600 men ahead of the fleet in dugout canoes to attack a small Spanish artillery battery on Bartola Island, a few miles from Fort Immaculate Conception. On April 9th, Nelson personally leads a charge against the Spanish position, and the defenders are only subdued by bloody hand-to-hand fighting. Meanwhile, the Spanish governor of Granada, Matias de Galvez, has not been idle. In his book, Spain and the Independence of the United States, An Intrinsic Gift, American historian Thomas E. Chavez writes, quote, Juan de Isa, the commander of the Castle of the Immaculate Conception on the San Juan River, had already heard the rockets exploding and smoke rising over the jungle's trees. He sent two messages to Galvez in which he reported that a British force was approaching and had already destroyed Fort Bartola, the castle's advanced lookout post, but not without a fight. Those fleeing from Fort Bartola warned the main castle. As everyone expected, the British were attempting to gain control of the river and thus take Lake Nicaragua. The thrust was not a surprise. Fully aware of British plans, Galvez had already moved to Granada, the capital of Nicaragua, by late February in order to strengthen defenses. He furnished logistical support to Fort Immaculate Conception and ordered a patrol of vessels on Lake Nicaragua. When the British siege of the fort began, Galvez mustered 500 local militia to construct a stockade at the mouth of the San Juan River in Lake Nicaragua. They called the place Fort San Carlos in honor of their king. The Spanish defenders received their first glimpse of the enemy on April 10th at four in the afternoon. By that time, the Spanish Lord Governor had ordered water supplies replenished the construction of a stockade of timbers to protect the moat, and the burning of a small fort on a hill next to the castle. All the private dwellings inside the fortress as well as outside were also burned. In addition, they killed all the livestock, both to stockpile food and to prevent it from falling into enemy hands. Isis' orders were carried out with quick efficiency. For the next 18 days, a battle ensued in which intrigue, hand-to-hand fighting, and artillery salvos combined with hunger, thirst, fatigue, and the inevitable disease. They were able to retrieve water from a secret spot until the British found them at the waterhole. A couple of pitched battles were then fought along the riverbanks. At another point, the Spanish command learned that the British were low on cannonballs, for they were reusing what the Spanish had shot. This news was of interest, but not of use, because the Spanish were very low on ammunition as well. Eventually, the British set up breastworks within 50 feet of the castle's walls. 
A Spanish foray beyond the walls resulted in hand-to-hand -hand fighting in which Spanish soldiers used machetes to counter British bayonets. Six British soldiers died and one command post was destroyed. The foray also made available some much-needed water. The defense became so desperate that Isa commanded, from his rubble of a fort, that vinegar be mixed with the water to make it spread further. The many artillery barrages continued on a daily basis until the last week of the siege. Isa officially reported daily on the deaths of his own men. One officer received a number of shrapnel wounds on the arm, thigh, and chest. He was given up for dead, but surprised everyone by surviving without leaving his post. On the other hand, a Spanish shot blew up a British emplacement and pieces of the guns and bodies shot up into the air. As the siege continued, Isa ran out of water, ammunition, and space in the chapel to place any more wounded. On 28th April, 1780, he ordered an officer to walk out the front gate under a white flag and request a ceasefire to discuss terms of surrender. Polson agreed to the proposal and hostilities stopped. Isa and his brave men, many of them blacks and mulattoes, had resisted for 18 days. End quote. Mulatto, by the way, is a politically incorrect term that used to be inoffensive. Uh, it means people of mixed race, and what Chavez is talking about here is the contrast between the multi-ethnic Spanish force and the more monochromatic British European force. And it might be the European non-indigenous nature of this force that ultimately dooms it. As Chavez has already mentioned, disease is starting to set in, particularly amongst the British. Now, disease has historically been a problem for besieging armies in most conflicts, but during the Age of Sail, European troops in the tropics fare particularly poorly. Governor Dawling sends 450 reinforcements from Jamaica, but is unable to keep the army supplied. Unable to advance, the British Expeditionary Force hunkers down in the Fort of the Immaculate Conception. They're still on the San Juan River. They haven't made it to Lake Nicaragua yet, much less further inland, much less to the Pacific, and men are dropping left and right with diseases like malaria and typhoid fever. And by the beginning of July, the British are losing between six and eight men per day. And in addition to poor health, the overall nutritional situation isn't great. Uh, they're reduced to foraging for bananas in the jungle and even eating monkeys. Horatio Nelson is one of the first men to get sick, by the way. He has to be evacuated before the fortress of the Immaculate Conception even falls. Matias de Galvez has continued fortifying upriver. He's built up Fort San Carlos, and he's got an army further north, 
not in his own territory, but in British Honduras, modern-day Belize, uh, where at the time the British have their own little colony on the Central American mainland. And this army is terrorizing British sugar plantations with a scorched-earth campaign all along the Caribbean coast. And Governor Dalling in Jamaica is powerless to do anything about it because he's tied up so many men and resources in Nicaragua. On November 30th, 1780, the British finally withdraw their expeditionary force back to Jamaica. This is after losing nearly 2,500 men to disease. That's something like 80% of the expeditionary force just wiped out, and all of those men have died for nothing. The Spanish have made better use of their time and manpower and resources in 1780. Matias de Galvez's son, Bernardo de Galvez, is the governor of Spanish Louisiana, which at this time is a large territory that, at least on paper, extends as far north as the fortress of St. Louis in modern-day Missouri. The Spanish actually claim all of North America west of the Mississippi, and while this will only ever be true on paper, it is a claim that they aim to defend. Bernardo de Galvez believes that the British intend to invade the Mississippi Valley by coming south from Detroit in the Great Lakes region, uh, dislodging George Rogers Clark, the American militia leader, frontierman, who we talked about in the last episode, and then pressing further south and forcing the Spanish out of Louisiana. And according to this theory, this attack from the north is going to be supported by a second British attack from Pensacola, Florida, which will put the Spanish in Louisiana into a vice. If successful, this would not only force the Spanish out of North America, but assure British control of the Mississippi Valley in the event that the United States wins independence. This would effectively bottle up the new nation on the North American coast. Given everything else that the British are dealing with in 1780, a massive two-pronged attack on the Mississippi Valley seems like a bit of a tall order. Not too long ago, they struggled and failed to pull off a large two-pronged attack across the state of New York in the Saratoga campaign. Well, here, uh, Bernardo de Galvez is worried about some strategic move that stretches from the very north to the very south of the modern-day United States. This would be a massive maneuver even today. And while we do see some writing from British generals and leaders alluding to this plan, it really seems like wishful thinking on the British part. But this is an idea that's kicking around, and it is something that this Spanish Louisiana governor, Bernardo de Galvez, has to take into account. 
and he decides that the best defense is a good offense, so he's going to attack first. De Galvez aims to strike east from Louisiana into the British-owned territory of West Florida, which consists of the modern-day Florida panhandle, as well as parts of southern Mississippi and Alabama. All of this fighting that we're talking about might seem like it's oddly spread out. The Spanish and British are fighting in Nicaragua. They're fighting in modern-day Belize. They're fighting on the U.S. Gulf Coast. But the British and the Spanish aren't really fighting over land. They're fighting for control of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, which includes some fighting in the Caribbean islands that we haven't even touched on. Look at all of these locations on a map. Nicaragua, Belize, Louisiana. You can sort of draw a ring around the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, and that is one of the world's richest trade regions during this time period. The Spanish invasion of West Florida isn't about controlling some swamps in modern-day Alabama. It's about controlling the Gulf Coast and denying the British a foothold anywhere around the Caribbean. Bernardo de Galvez has been itching to attack Florida since the summer of 1779. And while he's raised a militia force of several hundred men in New Orleans, which is a lot considering how small of a town New Orleans at this time, he has not received any regular troops from his father in Cuba. It's not until January 11th, 1780, that de Galvez finally receives his first shipment of Spanish regular troops, and even then it's only 450 men. Shortly thereafter, Matias de Galvez sends an additional 450 men, which in addition to the troops who were already in New Orleans, brings Bernardo de Galvez's total up to about 1,200 regular troops. Again, that might not seem like a whole lot, but the regulars are important. Just like the Americans, the Spanish are going to run into constant trouble with their militia. Those men are farmers, not soldiers. While most of them are happy to do their duty and fight when needed, their families and their farms will always come first. So having some regulars around is handy. And as it turns out, the delay in their arrival is just as well. The British at this time still have many military outposts on the east bank of the Mississippi, including Baton Rouge, which Galvez takes in September 1779 after a siege of just a few days. Galvez also clears out a bunch of British settlers who have been farming on the East Bank and who are now considered a security threat. They're too close to New Spain, and they have to be evicted. When the regular troops finally arrive, Galvez takes them east to attack the city of Mobile in modern-day Alabama, which is defended by 
roughly 300 British troops at a fort called Fort Charlotte. Galvez wisely leaves all but around 400 of his militia back in New Orleans, where they can defend the city while remaining close to their homes. He's going to rely mostly on his regulars. This area of the Gulf Coast is full of swamps, woods, and other hostile terrain, and with no suitable roads for an army in these days, the Spanish embark for Mobile by sea. Unfortunately for them, a freak storm blows in, and two of their ships are wrecked, and several more run aground before they can make it safely into Mobile Harbor, and Galvez loses nearly 400 of his men. Undeterred, he salvages the cannons from some ships that have run aground and deploys them at the mouth of the harbor to fight off any British attempts at reinforcement by sea, and then he marches the rest of his men ten miles inland to Fort Charlotte, where he arrives on February 28th. The British commander, Elias Durnford, is a former governor of West Florida and knows his men are too badly outnumbered to hold the fort. He's already sent word to John Campbell, the British commander at Pensacola, who has raised a force of a thousand men and is now marching west to relieve Fort Charlotte. If Durnford can hold out for long enough, Campbell's men might be able to drive the Spanish off and relieve the siege. What transpires in the meantime is the type of gentlemanly siege you don't see anymore, but which used to be more commonplace during this time period. In his book, The American Revolution, A Global War, American military historian Richard Ernest Dupuis tells us about a series of exchanges between Durnford and Galvez, who begin the siege by drinking to each other's good health and sending each other gifts, including fresh meat, wine, and cigars. Dupuis writes, quote, Galvez and Durnford then opened a literary correspondence of exquisite courtesy. Durnford had ordered some houses in Mobile burned to prevent their being used as concealment for Spanish batteries. Galvez wrote him a gentle rebuke for this destruction of people's homes, and suggested that if Durnford would not burn any more houses, Galvez would not establish batteries behind any. Durnford thanked him on behalf of Mobile's residents for his promise, which Durnford understood to mean he would attack from the other side of the fort, and he gave it as his opinion that Galvez would find the terrain on the other side quite suitable for launching an attack. Galvez then hastened to clarify his promise. It was conditional only, and he had given no promise not to attack from the residential side of the fort. However, if Durnford felt that Galvez had in fact given his word, he would in all honor behave as though he had. Durnford promptly assured Galvez that he did not consider the conditional promise binding and would not hold him to it. Meanwhile, the Spaniards moved up their guns, presumably on the more vulnerable side of the fort. The records are not clear. End quote. On March 12th, Spanish artillery succeeds in blowing a hole in Fort Charlotte's walls, 
and Durnford runs up the white flag, Dupuy tells us, with the setting sun. It's not a day too soon from the Spanish perspective. At this point, uh, unbeknownst to Durnford or Galvez, John Campbell's relief force from Pensacola is only a few miles away. Had Fort Charlotte been able to hold out for another two days, the Spanish may have been driven back. As it stands, the Spanish capture Mobile along with the British garrison, and Campbell's force withdraws back east to Pensacola. This puts a Spanish army within striking distance of British Florida, and the only reason Galvez doesn't march onward to Pensacola in 1780 is because his father is afraid the British might attack Cuba, so he doesn't send more regulars. He's keeping a lot of Spanish troops in Havana just in case. Cuba is the major Spanish base in the Americas. Appropriately, Jamaica is the major British base in the Americas at this time, and both are key territories in the Caribbean. Both sides are protecting those at all costs. Against the Spanish and the French, the British experience in 1780 is a series of failures. But against their rebellious American colonists, they are a bit more successful. It's also worth noting that the fighting between the British and the Americans is becoming more and more brutal as the two sides become more and more frustrated with each other and both sides employ Native American allies who engage in what the Europeans would consider atrocities. This war is starting to look different from the polite, gentlemanly conflict between the European powers. If you'll recall from the end of the last episode, the British in 1780 are shifting to what they call the Southern Strategy in the United States. British North American Commander-in-Chief General Henry Clinton has sailed south from New York with around 8,500 men, along with Lord Charles Cornwallis, whom he intends to leave in command when he heads back north. Their goal is to conquer Charleston, South Carolina, America's fourth-largest city by population and largest port in terms of pure trade value. Compared to the goods shipped from New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, the cotton, tobacco, and indigo shipped via Charleston are incredibly valuable, and something like seven out of ten of the richest men in the young United States are South Carolina plantation owners who depend on Charleston's harbor. Control the harbor, and you control that wealth. Not only that, but the population of loyalists in the South is slightly higher than it is in the North, something the British hope to use to their advantage as they try to raise local militia allies. Charleston is located on a peninsula at the junction of the Ashley and Cooper Rivers, which flow out on either side into a large harbor surrounded by barrier islands. 
It's on one of these islands at Fort Sumter that the first shot of the American Civil War will be fired a little more than 80 years hence. But in 1780, when Clinton and Cornwallis arrive on a cold February day, they have to meticulously drive the Americans off these barrier islands one by one in order to fully surround the city of Charleston. Clinton augments his force not only by calling upon American loyalist militias, but also by reaffirming Governor Dunmore's proclamation you may remember from the beginning of the war. He offers freedom to any black slaves who are willing to fight for that freedom by joining the British cause. Between white loyalists and black militiamen, Clinton soon adds a little over 2,000 men to his army. You might wonder why there aren't thousands more black militiamen. After all, African-American slaves are the majority of South Carolina's population. Why don't they all just take advantage of this opportunity and rise up? Well, it's not that simple. The slaveholders have come up with all kinds of ways to discourage escape. Things like punishing other slaves if one slave escapes. So if you're on one of these plantations and you run off to join the British, you'll win your freedom. But you will simultaneously be condemning your friends and family members to severe punishment. And the slaveholders will rarely, rarely, not never, but not often, kill slaves. See, the slaves are worth a lot of money, so instead they do things like castration, things that will make you wish you were dead instead. Any kind of torture, any kind of mutilation, as long as it doesn't interfere with the slave's ability to work, it's on the table. Considering all of that, it's amazing that a couple of thousand very brave slaves managed to escape and join the British. It's worth noting that during their occupation of South Carolina, the British will eventually liberate around one in four of the colony's slaves for one reason or another, and those individuals will leave with the British army at the end of the war, and most of them will live out their lives in freedom. Anyway, American General Benjamin Lincoln has only 5,500 men with which to defend Charleston, and around 2,500 of those are militia who he has just called up. Lincoln himself is a Massachusetts farmer who suffers from sleep apnea and frequently dozes off during meetings. This Yankee with the sleepy reputation has a tough time getting the local Southerners to support him. South Carolina is only lukewarm in its support for the revolution to begin with, and the state assembly has just refused Lincoln's request to raise more troops to defend the city. At times, 
the plantation-owning class seems totally removed from the war, continuing to hold fancy parties in the heart of Charleston even as the British begin to close in. Lincoln can't rely on local African Americans to bolster his numbers either. He can't very well offer them their freedom since that would alienate all of the slave owners, meaning everyone with any influence at all in South Carolina politics, and he can't force them into service because that would mean handing them guns, which is obviously a non-starter. At the same time, Lincoln won't be getting any help from George Washington. Washington is dealing with an absolutely brutal winter in Morristown, New Jersey right now. The cold reaches historic levels, with temperatures only rising above freezing twice in the month of January, and with inflation of the continental dollar in triple digits. Washington barely has enough money to keep his men on a starvation diet. He certainly doesn't have the resources to get together a huge transport fleet like the British have and sail south, and he has no way of marching his men 800 miles south to get to Charleston. Besides which, there's still the matter of the 15,000 or so British troops in New York City that need to be kept bottled up. That's why Washington is in New Jersey and why he will remain there for some time yet. Anyway, the upshot is that Benjamin Lincoln has 5,500 men to defend Charleston with. And other than a few hundred militia from nearby states, he is not getting any reinforcements. At this point, the wise move would be to concede Charleston, preserve the army, and withdraw into the countryside. But Lincoln's sense of honor gets the better of him, and he decides he's going to defend the city for as long as he can. When the British army comes within sight of Charleston, the locals finally spring into action. The state assembly grants Governor John Rutledge almost dictatorial powers, and he rounds up 600 slaves to help Lincoln's army dig trenches and build earthworks across the peninsula. General Clinton starts digging his own trenches, calls in 2,500 more troops from New York and another 1,500 from Savannah, and settles in for a traditional siege beginning on March 29, 1780. This involves digging a series of zigzag trenches that creep closer to the city and eventually allow the British to bring artillery far enough forward to damage the American defenses. On April 10th, Clinton formally asks Lincoln to surrender, and Lincoln refuses. Lincoln does, however, convince Governor Rutledge in the Assembly to flee the city so the civilian government can continue to function. On April 19th, the British guns are within 250 yards and are doing serious damage. 
Lincoln now offers to surrender on the condition that he's allowed to march his troops out with all of their weapons, but it's too late for that, and Clinton refuses, instead ordering a massive overnight bombardment that terrifies Charleston's defenders. The siege continues for another 20 days until May 9th, when Lincoln makes another offer of surrender. This time he asks the British to let his militiamen go home and only take the Continental Army soldiers as prisoners, but Clinton refuses again. And on the morning of May 12th, Lincoln surrenders the entire garrison. At a cost of just 76 killed and 189 wounded, General Clinton has captured over 5,500 Americans, the port of Charleston, hundreds of barrels of gunpowder, and other military supplies. Moreover, there's no longer any effective American fighting force in the Carolinas, which leaves the British free to maneuver and capture more of the southern colonies. Satisfied, General Clinton returns to New York and leaves Lord Cornwallis in charge of the army in the south. Around the same time, General Lincoln also gets to travel north. In these days, if you're a senior officer and you're taken prisoner, you often get released on parole. So Lincoln simply swears an oath that he won't take up arms against the British until he's formally traded back to the Americans, and in the meantime he gets to go live on his farm in Massachusetts. While there's no large American army in the South, there are still several smaller units, and the British are going to have to deal with those. This means fighting in the back country, far from the main British supply lines, and this kind of fighting requires a special type of soldier. Instead of using regular redcoats, Cornwallis entrusts much of the backcountry fighting to Lieutenant Colonel Bannister Tarleton, who you may remember as the young cavalry officer who captured General Lee in his bathrobe earlier in the war. Only 25 years old, Tarleton is the son of a wealthy Liverpool slave trader who purchased his commission in the army. But he's not just some rich dude, he is a competent and ruthless soldier, and now he is commanding the British Legion, which is better known to history as Tarleton's Raiders. Tarleton's Raiders is a loyalist militia in the pay of the British Crown, which consists of both infantry and dragoons, who are light, fast-moving mounted troops. And if you thought things in the American South were looking awfully genteel and civilized, Bannister Tarleton and his raiders are anything but. Following the surrender of Charleston, the small American militia units in the city's vicinity redeploy, most of them heading north to North Carolina to establish defenses and try to keep the British bottled up in the Deep South. One of these militia units is a force of a little over 400 Virginia militia under the command of Colonel Abraham Buford who had only just arrived near Charleston when they found out the city had surrendered. So, 
Buford turned his men around and headed back north. And Bannister Tarleton had followed, with 270 mounted troops and a light horse-drawn cannon. On the morning of May 29th, Tarleton catches up with Buford and sends him a message demanding his surrender. Buford refuses and says that he intends to fight to the last extremity. He then resumes his northward march, and I have to give him major points as a tactician because he wisely puts his baggage train at the front of the column to keep his supplies protected. Unfortunately, I have to take those tactician points right back because when Tarleton's raiders catch up with the militia, Buford orders his men to hold their fire until the charging dragoons are only ten yards away. Instead of getting off a few volleys, the Virginians are only able to fire a single shot before being overrun by men on horseback. Buford almost immediately recognizes that he's screwed up, and he sends a white flag to Tarleton to seek a surrender. What happens next is both a human tragedy and a disaster for the British cause. See, while the Americans had only fired a single volley, one Virginian had managed to shoot Bannister Tarleton's horse, which falls on top of him. Tarleton is alive and isn't even seriously hurt, but he's pinned beneath a dead horse, and in the confusion his men think that he's been killed. So not only is there no one to accept the American surrender in the heat of the fighting, but Tarleton's men are angry at the perceived death of their commander. In his book, Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution, University of North Carolina professor Dr. Dan Morrill writes, quote, According to Patriot accounts, Tarleton kept up the slaughter even after the Whigs had raised the white flag and asked for quarter. The demand for quarter, seldom refused to a vanquished foe, was at once found to be in vain, proclaimed Dr. Robert Brownfield, a surgeon who rode with Buford. There were reports that members of the British Legion tossed aside the dead so they could stab and bludgeon the wounded lying underneath. Tarleton admitted that his troops displayed a vindictive asperity not easily restrained, but insisted that such excesses had occurred because the Tories mistakenly believed that they had lost their commanding officer. It was a grotesque scene. The familiar stench of death was everywhere. After the battle, women from the Waxhaw Presbyterian Church came to help carry off the wounded in overburdened wagons. Trenches were dug in the red clay earth of the Carolina Piedmont to receive piles of mutilated corpses. Eighty-four bodies were buried in one mass grave, and twenty-five in another about three hundred yards away. End quote. And if you still have romantic ideas about gentlemanly warfare in this time period, Professor Morrill makes sure not to leave any doubt. He goes on to quote Buford's surgeon, Dr. Brownfield, who wrote the following account of one American officer's injuries. Quote, 
Early in the sanguinary conflict, he was attacked by a dragoon, who aimed many deadly blows at his head, all of which, by the dexterous use of the small sword, he easily parried. When another, on the right, by one stroke, cut off his right hand through the metacarpal bones. He was then assailed by both, and instinctively attempted to defend his head with his left arm until the forefinger was cut off, and the arm hacked in eight or ten places from the wrist to the shoulder. His head was then laid open almost the whole length of the crown to the eyebrows. End quote. Bannister Tarleton's name has become associated with this kind of atrocity, and that's not entirely unfair, but it's not entirely fair either. After all, he was pinned down under his horse while the massacre was going on. But in the aftermath of this battle, known as the Battle of Waxhaws, fairly or not, the British Legion becomes a symbol of all the worst aspects of British imperialism and it makes Americans angry, particularly those in the South and particularly those in the back country. At some future engagements, when British troops try to surrender, Patriot militiamen will give them what they call Tarleton's Quarter, meaning no quarter at all. So you have some pretty fierce fighting going on in fits and starts in the Carolina backcountry, but the British Army still controls Charleston and its trade, and it's going to take more than some militia to drive them out, and the southern colonies are still struggling to put together a proper field army. George Washington is well aware of this problem, and even before the fall of Charleston had been trying to help, he had sent Baron Johann de Kalb, a Prussian officer, with 1,400 regular troops to assist in the city's defense, but they had arrived in late June, well after Charleston's defeat. They had been forced to march instead to Hillsborough, North Carolina, which is about 240 miles north of Charleston, South Carolina. This force of 1,400 men is now the only regular American army south of the Potomac River. It's soon joined by General Horatio Gates, the hero of the Battles of Saratoga, who Congress has appointed as the new overall commander in the South. Gates runs into trouble, though. See, the Carolina elites who rely on the port of Charleston are often cautious to support the Patriot cause. Their wealth is tied up in their plantations, many of which are currently under British occupation. Should they be caught providing financial support to the Continental Army, the British could take everything they own and, horror of horrors, emancipate all of their slaves and, indeed, this type of thing does happen from time to time when a southern elite is caught directly helping the United States. As a result of this difficulty in getting help, Horatio Gates is still unable to raise a proper army. Uh, besides these 1,400 regular troops who Washington had sent, he's 
mostly forced to rely on militia. His plan is to move south into South Carolina and capture the town of Camden. This is an important way station on the road to Charleston, and it could allow the Americans to set up a supply depot with which to launch a larger attack. On that much, all of Gates's officers can agree. But there's disagreement amongst the senior staff on the best route to take to get to Camden. The longer route lies through Salisbury and Charlotte. This is a windy road, and the route is about 50 miles longer than the other route, but it leads through a well-populated country with plenty of food and a majority patriot population. The shorter route, well, it's shorter and more direct, but it leads through barren sand hills that are not only just lightly populated, so few supplies, but they're also dominated by loyalist militia. Gates has learned that Camden is only defended by 700 redcoats. So he decides that rather than risk them receiving any reinforcements before he arrives, he's going to take the shorter route and take the town while the taking is good. This turns out to be a big mistake. Lord Cornwallis, who is now the overall commander of British forces in the Southern Theater, is well aware of Gates's plans, and he has prepared a relief force to march out and meet the Americans. He's also been spending much of the summer building up supply depots throughout the countryside. This has been no easy task. Other than Tarleton's raiders, Cornwallis has practically no cavalry to use as messengers, and small supply caravans are routinely intercepted by Patriot militia, but by early August the British have gone a long way towards solidifying their hold over rural South Carolina. The Americans aren't going to be attacking 700 redcoats. Gates and his men are going to be attacking over 2,000 British and German soldiers, almost all of whom are combat veterans. By comparison, nearly two-thirds of Gates's 4,000-man force consists of militia, most of whom have never gone on campaign, much less seen combat. By marching them through harsh, hostile terrain prior to attacking the enemy, Gates is exhausting and demoralizing men who need all the encouragement they can get to get psyched up for their first fight. In the world of sports... We sometimes talk about a team or a player getting exposed. There's the football team that's good enough to win a championship if it weren't for their poor run defense, or the baseball player who can't hit a slider thrown low and outside. Well, in my biased opinion, at the Battle of Camden, Horatio Gates is exposed as a man who never should have reached such a high command. 
His previous successes can be chalked up to sub-commanders like Philip Schuyler, Benjamin Lincoln, and particularly Benedict Arnold, who saved his bacon at Saratoga and had previously commanded a brilliant naval defense of Lake Champlain, and Gates had stolen credit for all of this. Now, all of a sudden, he doesn't have brilliant sub-commanders anymore, and he's taken the wrong advice, and he's about to get exposed. On the night of August 15th, Horatio Gates is just a few miles north of Camden and decides to order his men on a night march against the British to take them by surprise. On its face, this doesn't sound like a terrible idea. But remember, this is the 18th century. They don't have night vision, and marching in the dark is a challenge, even more so for inexperienced men and even more so for an army that's never maneuvered together before. You're either going to trip over your own feet and guys are going to get hurt, or your guys are going to all have to carry lanterns and they're going to be visible anyway from a long distance. It's, it's a problem. These poor men are also dealing with a big food problem. They have eaten quick-baked bread for dinner, and they've supplemented this with some molasses and some questionable beef because they're getting to the tail end of their supplies, and not to put too fine a point on it, but they are all suffering from diarrhea. So this night march turns into something out of a slapstick comedy, with bloated men barely able to march, and guys constantly running off to the side of the road to relieve themselves. This is not exactly how you want to sneak up on your enemy, and even assuming they had been coming as quietly as possible, Lord Cornwallis is well aware that they're coming. And... He is prepared, and Gates is not. Gates still has no idea of the size of the force he's facing. He's about to find out. The two armies both have their cavalry out in front, and before dawn they run into each other, and a couple of Tarleton's raiders get captured. And it's from them that... Gates learns that he's facing an entire British army. At this point, the prudent thing to do would be to retreat, or at least to send out a bunch of scouts and get a really good idea of the enemy defenses. Instead, Gates decides that he's just going to move his army out at dawn and meet Cornwallis who has taken up position between two swamps. This is wide, open ground with sparse clusters of pine trees. It's perfect terrain for British regulars to operate. And the swamps to both sides prevent the Americans from using their superior numbers to get around the British flank and surround them. If Cornwallis were given a quill pen and a piece of paper and allowed to literally draw up his own battlefield, he couldn't have done better than this. He's an experienced, capable commander, and he has chosen his ground well. 
When Gates attacks before dawn, he makes another mistake. He lines up his militia on the left side of his army, which is facing the most experienced British troops. The American regulars on the right side of Gates's line actually fight pretty well, and they come close to forcing a British retreat on that side. But Cornwallis rallies his men, and when the British charge the North Carolina and Virginia militia on the other side of the battlefield, the militia turn and run. Not that you can blame them, they're facing the bayonet, and these men have never even trained with their bayonets, which is something Gates would have known. Anyway, this collapse of the American left flank allows the British to partially surround Gates's regular troops on the other side. Amazingly, about half of these regulars are able to escape by retreating through a swamp that's too treacherous for Bannister Tarleton's horses. But other than that little ray of sunshine, the Battle of Camden is a complete disaster for the Patriot cause. All told, Gates has lost nearly 2,000 men, along with all eight of his cannons, as well as his supply wagons. And two days later, on August 18th, Bannister Tarleton drives home the dagger by attacking an American militia force at Fisher Creek, South Carolina. His 350 raiders capture the American lookouts before they can sound an alarm, and a force of 700 militia and 100 Continental Army regulars is surrounded and almost completely captured. In December of 1780, the Continental Congress removes Gates from command, and he's replaced by George Washington's top choice for the job, reliable Nathaniel Green, who will remain the American commander in the Southern Theater for the remainder of the war. Some in Congress call for Gates to be court-martialed for his performance at Camden, but several senior officers, including Nathaniel Green, come to his defense, and the matter is ultimately dropped. Gates will never again hold a field command, although he will spend the rest of the war with George Washington's main army as a staff officer. When Nathaniel Green arrives in North Carolina in December, he learns that while there's basically no army for him to command— Patriot militias in the South are doing quite well all of a sudden. On October 7th, a Patriot militia force of around 900 men had defeated an 1,100-man force of Loyalist militia at Kings Mountain at the north end of South Carolina. This Patriot force, led by Kentucky militia leader Isaac Shelby, had been en route to link up with the main American army at the Battle of Camden. They had intended to join up with the main force for a follow-up attack on Charleston, but upon learning of Gates's defeat, Shelby had turned his men around. However, his rugged frontiersmen, known as over-the-mountain men because they came from the western Appalachian Mountains, well, they weren't about to go home without some kind of fight. So 
Shelby's over-the-mountain men raided a Loyalist grain depot at Musgrove's Mill and killed or captured around 170 men. The Loyalist militia had pursued him deep into the back country, seeking revenge, where Shelby led his men on a 60-mile march to evade them. Over the course of three days, he manages to stay one step ahead of the enemy. And then he links up with a Virginia militia led by William Campbell, who takes overall command. The joint force then decides to turn around and attack the pursuing Loyalist task force. The Loyalists are led by Scottish Major Patrick Ferguson, a British Army soldier who also commands a handful of redcoats. The total size of his force numbers 1,125 men, but this deep in the wilderness, it's not enough. So he's made camp and written back to Charleston for reinforcements, hoping to crush the Patriot militias in this area once and for all. In the meanwhile, he is vulnerable, and all he can do is sit in a defensive position on a hill and wait. He won't have to wait long before Campbell's militia attacks. When they do, contrary to what you might expect, the elevated terrain ends up working not in the favor of the British, but in the favor of the American attackers. Returning to Dan Morrill's account, quote, The hour-long conflict that unfolded at King's Mountain on October 7, 1780, was a bloody but fascinating engagement. It was fundamentally a contest between two divergent military stratagems, one essentially European, the other distinctively American. Patrick Ferguson, riding his white horse from one side of the summit to the other, blowing constantly on his shrill silver whistle, sent his disciplined militiamen down the steep slopes to hurl back the grisly frontiersmen. The same deadly pattern occurred over and over again, firing volleys and then sticking their makeshift bayonets into the end of their muskets, the Tories would repeatedly repulse the enemy. As either column would approach the summit, Shelby explained, Ferguson would order a charge with fixed bayonet, which was always successful. But the attackers refused to quit, partly because they were ably led, and partly because the Loyalists tended to aim too high and shoot over the heads of their whooping, stealthy adversaries. The shot of the enemy soon began to pass over us like hail, James Collins remembered. Their great elevation above us, he continued, had proved their ruin. They overshot us altogether. Even more significantly, because the slopes fell off precipitously and had a thick cover of trees, the Tories could not press their initial advantage. As the Tories fell back towards the summit, the concealed patriots had ample time to load and fire their long rifles, with devastating results. I stood behind one tree and fired until the bark was nearly all knocked off and my eyes pretty well filled with it, said Thomas Young, a patriot private. According to Alexander Chesney, King's Mountain, from its height, would have enabled us to oppose a superior force with advantage, had it not been covered with wood, which sheltered the enemy and enabled them to fight in their favorite manner. 
Gradually, with over-the-mountain men coming at him from all sides, Ferguson began to give way. Hearing incessant shrieks from the Scotsman's silver whistle as they climbed upward, growing numbers of attackers succeeded in gaining the summit, where they stood at the edge of the tree line, well out of range of the Tories' muskets, and let loose with their long rifles upon the helpless enemy. De Paster, who was ordered by Ferguson to shore up one particularly vulnerable spot, found to his astonishment when he arrived at the place that he had almost no men, being exposed in that short distance to the constant fire of their rifles. Captain Chesney explained that the rebels were able to advance the crest until they took post and opened an irregular but destructive fire from behind trees and other cover. End quote. At this point, with his men taking fire from men who were undercover and slowly becoming surrounded, Major Ferguson realizes he's beaten and he calls for a retreat. Then he's shot from his horse, but his foot remains trapped in the stirrup and he's dragged into the woods. Some Patriot militiamen catch up with the mortally wounded Major, who fires a pistol at them before being shot by several militiamen all at once. Here we see more of the ugliness of this backcountry warfare, as some of the militia stop to urinate on Ferguson's corpse. Elsewhere in the battlefield, dozens of Loyalist militia are cowering in a ditch and begging to surrender, but they're shot down by patriots shouting, Tarleton's Quarter, Tarleton's Quarter. Eventually, patriot officers step forward and put a stop to the slaughter, and the remainder of the British force, around 670 survivors, is taken prisoner. There's other fighting in the back country and on the frontier. Far too much to go into here in excruciating detail. Notably, if you remember the frontiersman George Rogers Clark from last episode, uh, he's still fighting in Ohio in 1780, most notably defeating a force of around 450 Shawnee in the Battle of Pequa and burning hundreds of acres of Native American crops to force them off the land. And, again, without getting too far into things, we can move on to the next year's campaign. But before we get back to General Nathaniel Green and the main course of the war, I want to touch on one more of the smaller actions, and that is Benedict Arnold's raid on Richmond in January of 1781. Since switching sides, Arnold has received a commission as a brigadier general in the British Army, and he's been given command of the American Legion. No, I'm not talking about the modern U.S. Veterans Organization. This American Legion is a British Army brigade that's made up of troops raised in the 13 colonies. It's a sort of pilot program for incorporating native-born Americans into the regular army rather than having them serve in a parallel colonial army as they have in the past. And it's interesting to think about how that might have gone had the 13 colonies remained a part of the British Empire. 
As it stands, these 2,000 or so men in the American Legion remain a historical oddity. On January 1st, Arnold sets out from Chesapeake Bay and sails up the James River, stopping to burn plantations and farms as he goes. Richmond, Virginia's new capital, is not far upriver, but Governor Thomas Jefferson, yes, that Thomas Jefferson, well, he refuses to believe that Benedict Arnold is coming for the capital itself in the middle of winter. So when Arnold's men make landfall at nearby Westover on January 4th, it's too late to raise any kind of substantial defense. And when the American Legion arrives at Richmond itself a day later, the tiny militia force that managed to come together in the last 24 hours just goes home without offering any opposition. Benedict Arnold and his men march freely into Richmond while Jefferson and the rest of the government are forced to flee, along with most of the city's military supplies, which they have managed to gather up and take with them. Benedict Arnold writes to Jefferson, offering to buy the tobacco and other mercantile goods in the city of Richmond at half price, but Jefferson refuses. Not that he has much say in it. Arnold confiscates large quantities of goods, gives back some of the goods to loyalist merchants, and then sets fire to a number of buildings, including a sailcloth factory and a number of warehouses belonging to patriot merchants. But once the fire is started, the calm weather turns windy, and the flames spread indiscriminately to loyalist-owned warehouses, a printer's shop, and other buildings throughout Richmond's. As a result, Arnold leaves behind him not just angry patriots, but also angry loyalists who feel that they've been mistreated simply for the crime of being Virginians. Benedict Arnold will then withdraw for the winter, although his raid will provoke George Washington to put out a bounty on his head. In fall, the now-wanted-dead-or-alive Arnold will lead a similar raid in Connecticut, and this raid will include a massacre of Patriot militiamen. Other than that, Arnold and the American Legion will remain more or less on the sidelines for the rest of the American Revolution. Returning now to the main story, uh, back in the Carolinas... Nathaniel Green is also making good use of the winter weather, uh, planning to begin the year's campaign without waiting for spring. I should note that he's not alone, either. Washington has sent him south with several valuable subcommanders, including Baron von Steuben, Cavalry Commander Henry Lee, the Marquis de Lafayette, and Virginia pioneer Daniel Morgan. Together... They come up with a plan to bait the British into a trap. The campaign begins with the Americans splitting their army. Nathaniel Green takes command of the main force and marches southeast from his base in Charlotte, North Carolina, directly towards Charleston on the South Carolina coast. 
Daniel Morgan commands a smaller force heading southwest for the interior, where they can threaten the British from another direction. Lord Cornwallis responds to this by splitting his army. He stays with the main body and maneuvers to keep between Green and Charleston. And while he is doing this in the east, he dispatches Bannister Tarleton west to deal with Daniel Morgan's force. Tarleton pushes his men hard, and on January 16th, he comes almost within reach of Morgan's men near the Broad River, which isn't all that far from where the Battle of King's Mountain was fought a few months before. Daniel Morgan knows that Tarleton is close and orders his men to make camp, eat, and get some rest. They camp near a set of dairy pens, from which the coming battle gets its name, the Battle of Cowpens. This battle is one of the best examples of know your enemy that I've ever seen. The next morning, Morgan deploys his men across a low ridge and gives them orders that are designed to take advantage of Bannister Tarleton's proclivities as a commander. Tarleton is brave and aggressive, but he really only understands one tactic, charging directly at the enemy with infantry bayonets and cavalry sabers. He has no finesse, and he expects his enemy either to fight or to do what most militia have done when he's faced them and run away. Ahead of his main army, Morgan positions sharpshooters in a line of trees. These sharpshooters are to fire on Tarleton's men as they approach, specifically targeting officers. When the Redcoats get too close, the sharpshooters are to withdraw, but they're supposed to continue firing as they do so, as best they can, withdrawing from tree to tree and harassing the enemy. Behind them is the front line of troops, which is made up mostly of local militia. This is the line I talked about that's lined up across that ridge, and these are General Green's weakest troops. But unlike General Gates, he doesn't ask his untested militia to stand toe-to-toe with the British and exchange blows and seriously damage the enemy. Instead, he has given them very specific orders— Wait until they can see the whites of the enemy's eyes, then fire two volleys, once again targeting officers and sergeants. After the second volley, they're to retreat, but in good order and without dropping their weapons. Behind the militia is the last American line, which is made up of regular Continental Army troops who are fully trained in Baron von Steuben's methods. Well, Tarleton is even more predictable than Morgan expected, if that is possible. When he finds out how close Morgan's army is, he wakes up his men at three in the morning to steal an early march and make sure that the Patriots don't get away. This is totally unnecessary. To get away, 
Morgan would either have to ferry his men across the broad river, which would take time and leave him vulnerable to attack, or he'd have to make a wide maneuver around Tarleton's rangers, giving them time to, well, wake up and respond. So, while Morgan's men come into the fight well-rested and having eaten a proper breakfast, Tarleton's raiders are tired and hungry and for no reason. Tarleton opens the battle by sending 50 dragoons forward in an abortive charge to test Morgan's defenses. Fifteen of their horses come back with empty saddles, but he orders his infantry to advance anyway, confident that, as in the past, the colonial troops will turn and run when threatened with the bayonet. The redcoats march towards the tree line, and while several of their officers are shot down, they continue their advance through the trees and approach the waiting Patriot militia, who dutifully fire their two volleys before retreating. As the militia fall back, Tarleton orders his cavalry to charge in and pursue them. This is supposed to drive them entirely from the battle and inflict horrendous casualties and make the survivors forget all about coming back to the war, and this charging in of the cavalry is routine. It's what they do at the end of a battle, but Daniel Morgan has held back his own cavalry on a nearby hill. Uh, These guys are commanded by William Washington, a second cousin of George Washington, and as Tarleton's cavalry pursue the retreating militia, Washington's cavalry charge down from the hillside and blindside them. And while Tarleton's men try to put up a fight, it's the Americans who will ultimately drive them from the battlefield. While this is going on with the cavalry, Tarleton's infantry are still advancing. They're still marching forward, uh, approaching the Continental Army troops that form Morgan's final line. The British stop and form up and begin exchanging fire. When the American regulars don't retreat, Tarleton orders in his reserves, the 71st Infantry, This is a battalion of battle-hardened Highlanders who have fought in every campaign in the Americas since the Battle of Long Island. To get into the action, they have to sweep around the left side of the British line. There's a fight going on, the two armies are lined up, and they're not going to go through the middle and disrupt their formation, so these Scots are going to deploy on the British left, and if you're the Americans facing them, well, you have to worry about your right flank now being exposed to fire. So to prevent this, uh, Morgan orders the soldiers on his right flank to draw back over the top of the ridge and angle their formation to the side. Basically, he's turning his straight line into a bow-shaped formation that better protects its flanks. Well, to redeploy like this, the men are just going to turn around and walk backwards, and seeing American regulars turn their backs to the battle, the Highlanders think this is a retreat. None of their officers even seems to consider that it's just a regrouping. 
maybe because there aren't all that many officers left on the battlefield at this point. Uh, So the Highlanders break their formation and charge. And when they come over the crest of the ridge, instead of charging into the back of a retreating enemy, they find the Continental troops drawn up in a disciplined, Prussian-style line, and the Americans fire a murderous volley at a range of only 30 yards. Because the Highlanders have broken their formation, they're not able to immediately return fire, and in the confusion, they're suddenly faced with more American troops. See, after the militia had performed its planned retreat, Daniel Morgan had chased after them and convinced them not to leave the battlefield just yet. So instead of mounting their horses and going back to their farms, most of them reformed in a line and marched back into the battle to support the American regulars. This is the last straw for the exhausted British. They had expected to see their own cavalry sweeping in from behind the Americans to surround them, and instead it's they who are now in danger of being surrounded. The men of Tarleton's raiders turn tail and run. Tarleton personally leads a charge with the last of his dragoons to try and turn the tide, but the American cavalry countercharges and forces them back. If some accounts are to be believed, Tarleton and William Washington even cross swords in the melee. But no amount of personal bravery on Tarleton's part is going to win this fight. At long last, he too runs away, leaving behind 110 dead, more than 200 wounded, and over 600 prisoners. Tarleton's raiders have been badly mauled. They've lost nearly 80% of their men. And while they will refill their ranks with new recruits, their reputation for invincibility has been shattered. Following the Battle of Cowpens, Lord Cornwallis has to change his strategy. He breaks off from shadowing Nathaniel Green's army and instead marches west towards Morgan's army. Morgan, meanwhile, retreats back north into North Carolina, and Green, rather than advancing towards Charleston, also goes north to rendezvous with him. So this whole exercise, this whole invasion into South Carolina, might seem to have served little purpose. Why move in and then withdraw now? Why not keep pressing for Charleston? Well, the whole area around Charleston is well and truly under British control by this point. They have all kinds of supply depots and small fortifications that would give Cornwallis a big home field advantage. On the other hand, By withdrawing into North Carolina, General Greene is forcing Cornwallis to extend his own supply lines and march deep into the back country, which will give the Americans home field advantage, and Cornwallis takes the bait. And it's 
easy to criticize Cornwallis for this in retrospect, but it's important to remember that he has been ordered to put down the American colonial rebellion in the South. If he never faces the enemy, how's he going to do that? They'll just melt into the countryside, then pop back up somewhere else and attack him again. He doesn't really have a choice but to attack. It's also worth noting that General Greene may still have preferred to attack Charleston at this time rather than engage in an elaborate game of cat and mouse, but the South Carolina militia isn't cooperating. In a letter to his friend Joseph Reed, the governor of Pennsylvania, General Greene writes, quote, Our force was so small and Lord Cornwallis's movements so rapid that we got no reinforcements of militia, and therefore were obliged to retire out of state, upon which the spirits of the people sunk and almost all classes of the inhabitants gave themselves up for lost. They would not believe themselves in danger until they found ruin at their doors. The foolish prejudice of the formidableness of the militia being a sufficient barrier against any attempts of the enemy prevented the legislature from making any exertions equal to their critical and dangerous situation. Experience has convinced them of their false security. It is astonishing to me how these people could place such a confidence in a militia scattered over the face of the whole earth, and generally destitute of everything necessary for their defense. The militia in the back country are formidable. The others are not, and all are ungovernable and difficult to keep together. As they generally come out, 20,000 might be in motion and not 500 in the field. End quote. Well, without large numbers of South Carolinian troops, Nathaniel Green is going to have to rely on troops from other colonies, and that means withdrawing north and baiting Lord Cornwallis deeper into the American hinterland. From February 9th to 14th, 1781, Green and Cornwallis blaze north towards Virginia in what becomes known as the Race to the Dan, referring to the Dan River. Once across the Dan, the Continentals will be able to resupply from military storehouses in Virginia, and they'll have easy access to reinforcements, not just from Virginia, but also from Maryland, Delaware, and even from the Continental Army in New York, where George Washington is continually training new regiments and dispatching them south to help. This Race to the Dan is a whole adventure in its own right, with Green using deception and sending some light infantry to pretend like they're going to cross the river at one point and drawing off Cornwallis's army so Green can actually cross further downriver. Having gotten across ahead of the British, Green then has his men destroy their boats, which leaves Cornwallis and his army more than 20 miles from the nearest crossing. Without boats, they have to march to a ford. At any rate, the Americans win the race, which puts them safely in Virginia and leaves Cornwallis in a perilous position. He's 
something like 260 miles north of his supply base in South Carolina, but he's ever so close to his enemy. All he has to do, metaphorically, is throw one good punch, and he'll knock out Green's army and have all of Virginia from which to resupply. At this time, the colonial militias see a surge in recruitment, while the Tory militias Cornwallis is counting on to bolster his numbers never materialize. This works against him, obviously, and it happens not because there are no loyalists in the area, but because their morale has been crushed by the swords of Henry Lee's cavalry in an event that's come to be known as Pyle's Massacre. Henry Lee, by the way, is no relation of Charles Lee, the disgraced commander we discussed in an earlier episode. Anyway, I will let Dan Morrill tell the story of these Loyalist militia. Quote, Dr. John Pyle, a Tory militia colonel who lived in the country east of the Haw River, had raised a force of 300 to 400 of his neighbors, mostly young men and teenagers, and set out for Cornwallis's headquarters in Hillsborough. Caught up in the youthful euphoria of going to war, these lads, many of whom were sure-fitted with rum and other intoxicants, lustily sang and joked with one another as they marched through the dense forests and crossed the fast-running streams of the Piedmont. Knowing that Cornwallis had sent Bannister Tarleton to escort them into camp, Pyle and his compatriots were on the lookout for the famous green-jacketed dragoons. Light Horse Harry Lee and his legion, who also wore green jackets, just happened to be in the neighborhood. Two Tories spotted Lee's men and mistakenly believed they were Tarleton's. The pair told Light Horse Harry where Pyle was and rode off to tell the good doctor that Tarleton was coming. No doubt in awe at the prospect of meeting Cornwallis's illustrious cavalry commander, Pyle and his band of backwoodsmen spiffed up their uniforms and stood at attention in a long straight row, besides the road, with rifles on their shoulders to welcome the friends of the king. Looming over them on horseback came the patriots, riding slowly along with eyes fixed on the young loyalists and with sabers in their hands. Without warning, Lee's legion pounced upon the unsuspecting loyalists. The Patriot dragoons slaughtered their fellow Americans with sabers, bayonets, and rifles fired at point-blank range. Screams of agony and consternation filled the wintry air. The results tell the tale. This was no match. It was a one-sided bloodbath. It was an execution. Light Horse Harry Lee who lost not a single man in this grotesque incident, was ultimately responsible for killing upwards of 100 Tories and wounding and maiming about 200 others. End quote. Following this massacre, Tory militias in North Carolina and Southern Virginia mostly stay home, while Patriot militias turn out in droves, almost doubling the size of General Greene's army. Emboldened by this influx of troops, 
and knowing that Cornwallis is too savvy to attack into Virginia against a superior force, Greene then moves back south into North Carolina and encamps near a place called Guilford Courthouse. This is a trap, and Cornwallis takes it. He attacks on March 15, 1781, leading to what I consider the most underappreciated battle of the American War for Independence. At Guilford Courthouse, Green takes a page from Daniel Morgan's playbook and deploys his militia out to the front, lined up along a fence that will break up any direct enemy charge with sharpshooters deployed in trees to the flanks. Cavalry, in turn, is positioned behind the sharpshooters to ride out and protect their flanks if need be. Just like at Cowpens, the front line of militia is ordered to fire two volleys and then withdraw. But instead of faking an all-out retreat, these men, mostly raw recruits, are supposed to turn around and join the men in a second line about 350 yards behind. This line is made up of more veteran militia with combat experience, and instead of being out in the open, the men are positioned in a line of trees that favors the militia's backwoods fighting style. A few hundred yards behind this line of trees is the third line of American troops made up of Continental Army regulars. Green isn't trying to get Cornwallis to recklessly charge ahead like Tarleton did at Cowpens. Cornwallis is too smart for that. Instead, what Green does is leave a gap in the middle of his first two lines through which a road leads directly to the third line. By spacing out his troops this way, Green is trying to draw advancing British troops into a sort of funnel that will crowd them together in the center of the battlefield, expose them to fire from all directions, and make it harder for them to maneuver. The plan makes sense. While Green's 4,500 men vastly outnumber Cornwallis's 2,100 or so men, only about 1,500 of Green's men are actual Continental Army, while Cornwallis's troops are almost all professionals. Green needs to make use of his superior numbers, and surrounding the British is the best way to do that. Unfortunately for the Americans, Cornwallis sees the trap. At around 1.30 in the afternoon, he orders his men to advance in a single line, simultaneously engaging the Americans on the left and right sides of the road and avoiding getting sucked down the road into the center. The two opening American volleys are deadly accurate, with Virginia and North Carolina militiamen resting their muskets on the fence to steady their aim and take extra accurate shots. Witnesses report that half of the British troops in the lead formation are killed by the opening volleys. But when the remaining redcoats fix their bayonets, the North Carolina militiamen run away. Now, 
they're supposed to retreat, but they're supposed to fall back in good order to the second line. They're not supposed to just run away, which is what they do. And this has now left a nice weak spot in the American defenses. And Cornwallis commits his reserve troops to press the attack in that area. As the British line now advances towards the second line of American militia, the ones in the trees, uh, they're under constant heavy fire from the sharpshooters to their left and right. The American cavalry on the flanks has been doing its job, uh, successfully fighting off Cornwallis's small cavalry contingent, which was trying to go after the sharpshooters. Meanwhile, in the center of the battlefield, the British line uh, continues advancing from the fence to the tree line. But this whole area is filled with thick brush. Uh, it makes it impossible for the Redcoats to just uh, uh, mount their bayonets and charge. They have to move very slowly, and then they have to stop and exchange fire and wear the Americans down. And... The British fight bravely, but they're losing a lot of men in the process. Cornwallis himself even has his horse shot out from under him, and he's almost captured by some Virginia militiamen before a quick-thinking British sergeant rides out and pulls him to safety. With discipline and courage under fire, the British eventually push the American militia out of the tree line, and their cavalry around this time finally manages to clear the colonial sharpshooters away from the flanks, although the American cavalry continues to put up resistance. The British also managed to capture a few cannons that the American militia had been using, this leaves Cornwallis's men facing only the Continental Army regulars and the couple of cannons they have with them. British troops on the right side of the battlefield spot a gap in the American line and move forward, isolating some Continental Army infantry on the American left who are now forced to withdraw to the rear. Other Americans who are nearby fire into the British from their flank, but they're eventually forced to withdraw. At the same time, the British 1st and 2nd Guards Battalions, elite troops on the British left flank, they have pushed through the trees and are now engaging Maryland troops on the American right flank. And as... All of these infantry are getting into a firefight. William Washington, who has won the cavalry fight on that side of the battlefield, the British left, the American right, uh, he charges into the guards from the rear, and he rides right through the formation, then turns his men around and charges through the guards a second time, his men swinging their sabers as they go and inflicting horrible casualties on the British. Now, if these elite guards' formations retreat, then it's likely that the rest of Cornwallis's men will also run away. He needs to do something to stop that. 
But the British guards, the Marylanders, and Washington's cavalry are all so closely packed together that it would be pointless to send more men into the fight and uh, try and extricate them. Instead, Lord Cornwallis gives one of the most controversial orders of the entire war and commands his artillerymen to load their guns with grape shot and fire into the mass of troops. Will he kill and maim a bunch of his own men? Yes. Will he clear out the American troops? Also yes. Grapeshot tears through masses of men like a shotgun through a flock of pigeons. Anyone left alive after the first volley, if they have two brain cells to rub together, they're going to get clear of the area. The tactic is brutal but effective. The Maryland infantry breaks and retreats, and Washington's cavalry follows behind, moving to protect them, while what is left of Cornwallis's guards withdraw back towards the British lines. Unwilling to risk losing the rest of his army and fearing a complete collapse, Nathaniel Greene orders a general retreat. The Americans withdraw back to the Dan River in good order, and Cornwallis controls the battlefield. It's been about two hours, and the time is now 3.30 in the afternoon. And the losses are stunning. The Americans have lost 79 killed and 185 wounded with a little over a thousand missing, most of whom probably just ran back to their homes. The British, on the other hand, have lost 93 killed, 408 wounded, and 25 captured, and an additional 50 wounded men die the night of the battle, as heavy rain pours down on their miserable camp. Numerically, these losses are not all that large compared to European battles of the period or the scope of the British Empire, but for Cornwallis's army here in the American South, these losses are a big deal. The Battle of Guilford Courthouse is a Pyrrhic victory. Cornwallis has won the battle, but he's lost his army. He now has fewer than 1,500 men who are unwounded. And notice I say unwounded, not in fighting condition, because these guys are beat. They're tired, they're hungry, they're short on ammunition, and they're weeks from their base of supply. They're reduced to foraging for food and robbing local farms just to stay fed. This is not an army anymore. This is just a bunch of men trying to survive. And they won't become an army again until they're fed, rearmed, and given a little R&R. Back in Britain, the member of parliament and leader of the opposition Whig party, Charles James Fox, would sum things up by saying, 
Another such victory would ruin the British Army. Cornwallis falls back to Hillsborough, North Carolina, hoping to raise Loyalist militia. But this is just wishful thinking, and I have no idea why he thought that, given the difficulty he was already having, why things would be any different now. Uh, recruiting Loyalists to join a losing army would be hard enough, but the British have been raiding every farm and plantation they come across. They're doing this out of necessity, but it's alienated many men who would otherwise have considered themselves loyal to King George. Eventually, with no loyalist recruits materializing, Cornwallis withdraws towards the coastal city of Wilmington to resupply while General Greene slowly leads his Americans back into the Carolinas, beginning a game of cat and mouse that will ultimately see Lord Cornwallis turn his army north towards Virginia, this time advancing up the coast in the hopes of linking up with the Royal Navy. He settles in at Yorktown, which is a peninsula on the Chesapeake Bay, between the mouths of the York and James Rivers, and he takes command of the small force led by Benedict Arnold, which had been establishing a defensive position there. It's a sound plan, but it's one that will ultimately lead to the final defeat of the British in North America. When Cornwallis turns north, Nathaniel Green doesn't pursue him. Green personally spends the summer and early fall clearing the British supply depots and smaller fortifications out of the Carolina backcountry, beating them back to the ports of Charleston and Savannah. Instead, the task of fighting Cornwallis is left to George Washington himself, who once again returns to take an active role in the fighting. As you'll recall, Washington has been encamped in New York since 1778, keeping an eye on the British under General Clinton, who control the city. In the summer of 1780, a French army of 7,000 men, under the command of Jean-Baptiste de Vimeur, the Comte de Rochambeau, had landed in Newport, Rhode Island, to support the American cause. A British fleet had arrived not long thereafter and blockaded uh, de Rochambeau's transport fleet in Newport's harbor, and he had refused to abandon it, so the French army had sat in Rhode Island for a full year. In 1781... The British have finally sailed away. The French fleet has been able to go home without having to surrender themselves, and Rochambeau has marched his men west and south to New York to link up with Washington. Washington presses for an assault on New York City. He even sends a message south to the Marquis de Lafayette, who is in Virginia keeping an eye on Cornwallis. And Washington tells Lafayette of this planned attack on New York. 
the message is intercepted by the British, which could have spelled disaster, except for the fact that Rochambeau is adamantly opposed to an attack on New York. The British defenses are too strong to take the city without naval support, and New York is too far from any French naval base for the French to risk sending a large fleet for a major engagement. Admiral de Grasse, commander of the French Caribbean fleet, says that he will sail no further north than Chesapeake Bay. So George Washington agrees to Rochambeau's plan to march south and attack Cornwallis at Yorktown and he prepares for an overland march. Yorktown itself cannot be taken without a naval blockade, but the French are able to provide plenty of help. Admiral de Grasse had originally intended on leaving some of his ships behind in the Caribbean to defend French merchant shipping, but the Spanish have graciously offered to take over that responsibility so de Grasse can go deal with the British at Yorktown. This is a real multinational effort, and it allows him to bring the entire French Caribbean fleet to the fight. Meanwhile, British Admiral Thomas Graves is sitting at anchor with his fleet in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, waiting for the attack on New York that British spies assure him is coming. In his book, 100 Decisive Battles from Ancient Times to the Present, American military historian Paul K. Davis writes, quote, While American forces under Lafayette kept an eye on Cornwallis, a French fleet under the Comte de Grasse was sailing north from the Caribbean. It arrived in late August at the mouth of the Chesapeake. Clinton in New York had heard reports of this, but had dismissed them as rumors. Once the report was confirmed, a British fleet under Admiral Thomas Graves sailed for the Chesapeake. There he found 24 French ships of the line, outnumbering his own 19. On September 5th, the two fleets engaged, with de Grasse positioning himself in such a way as to deny the British access into the bay. After a few hours of cannonade, the British received the worst of the damage although they remained in the neighborhood for another three days, when Graves sailed for New York to repair his damaged ships, he signed the death warrant of Cornwallis's force. When Washington and Rochambeau arrived and joined forces with Lafayette, their combined force numbered almost 16,000, more than twice that of Cornwallis. They began digging trenches that slowly but surely inched their way toward the redoubts around which the British were basing the defense of their position. With superior numbers and artillery, the Americans were able to severely punish the defenders, who could do little to respond. The constant pressure proved too much for the British to withstand. Cornwallis attempted an escape across the York River, but was undone by bad weather. On the night of October 15th, the two British redoubts were attacked. The French took the larger one after a short but intense fight. The Americans took the smaller one in ten minutes with few casualties. Although Cornwallis ordered a raid on the new rebel positions, it was too little and too late. On October 17th, he asked for surrender terms. 
He had held his position on the assumption that Clinton was sending reinforcements from New York. How they would break through the French fleet is a matter of conjecture, but Graves was prepared to give battle a second time. When he finally set sail from New York Harbor, it was October 17th. Cut off from any serious hope of relief, unable to withstand the bombardment, unable to maintain his troops with the winter approaching, Cornwallis had no choice but to surrender. He proposed that he and his men be paroled, on condition of not taking up arms in America again. But Washington demanded surrender as prisoners of war. On October 19th, Cornwallis's second-in-command, Brigadier General Charles O'Hara, rode out at the head of 6,000 men to surrender. The march from Yorktown to Washington's headquarters was certainly the longest the surrendering soldiers ever took, for it was gross humiliation to be defeated by colonials. O'Hara tried at first to surrender to Rochambeau, but that attempt at avoiding the Americans in favor of a fellow European failed. When he offered his sword to Washington, he was again rebuffed. As second-in-command, he had to surrender to Washington's second-in-command, Benjamin Lincoln. End quote. Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown is an eerie echo of Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga. Once again, an entire British army has been captured by the Americans, among them many of the empire's most experienced troops. Once again, the crown finds its forces bottled up in a few coastal cities, otherwise unable to exercise any control in North America, south of Canada. At the same time, the crown is concerned with far more pressing concerns. From September 1778 through June of 1781, the French have conquered some major Caribbean islands from the British. St. Vincent, Grenada, and Tobago. These might sound like tiny territories, and they are, but remember, their sugar and cocoa and other tropical resources are incredibly valuable in this time period. In the 18th century, Tobago alone is worth way more than any of the 13 colonies. In May of 1781, a Spanish army finally completes the goal of taking Pensacola, while Florida itself is mostly worthless swampland at this time, this represents yet another point of control on the Caribbean. The loss of Florida also limits British options for retaking the 13 colonies. With the Spanish in control, any army trying to attack the Americans from the south will now have to account for a Spanish army to their south. Then, in February of 1782, four months after the surrender at Yorktown, the British garrison on the Mediterranean island of Menorca is forced to surrender to the Spanish. This string of failures leads to a real crisis in the British government, where the war is already becoming increasingly unpopular. At home, Britain is also dealing with civil unrest. 
the American Revolution has fueled the fires of domestic British reformists who have long been pressing for democratic changes like allowing more people to vote and introducing a secret ballot. In 1778, the government had tried to go along with this by passing a bill granting civil rights to Roman Catholics who had been victims of discrimination in the empire since the Reformation. This had provoked a backlash by Protestant hardliners who rioted in London in the summer of 1780, resulting in the deaths of over 300 people, along with widespread looting and property damage that exceeded the damage that would be done in Paris during the French Revolution. Between domestic unrest and a series of military failures, Prime Minister Lord North's government had taken a drubbing in the 1780 parliamentary elections. While there are no formal political parties in Britain at this time, politicians are informally sorted into Lord North's Tory party and the opposition Whig party. Well, in 1780, Lord North's informal party loses 83 seats in Parliament, dropping from a strong 343-seat majority to a 260-seat minority. North is only able to remain Prime Minister by obtaining the support of a handful of unaligned members of Parliament to form a ever-so-slim majority. Even so, Public sentiment is running against the war, and it's all Lord North can do to keep the necessary funding flowing. He's able to do this mostly because of the war against France and Spain. After all, whatever your position on American independence, the war against the other European powers needs to be won, or at the very least not lost. But pressure is building for an end to hostilities in North America. On December 12, 1781, a motion is introduced in Parliament to unilaterally suspend hostilities with the United States and enter into peace negotiations. This would free up military resources and allow the Empire to focus on fighting the French, Spanish, and Dutch. The debate is passionate, and we have a record in the awkwardly titled book The Parliamentary History of England from the Earliest Period to the Year 1803 from which last mentioned epoch it is continued downwards in the work entitled Hansard's Parliamentary Debates. Yes, that is the title of the book. This book was written in 1803 by a British member of Parliament named William Cobbett and excerpted in the Journal of the American Revolution in September of 2022. That is where I have drawn these quotations from. According to Cobbett, one anti-war politician, Baron James Lowther, quote, rose to make a motion to inquire whether they were to persevere in this war and feed it with more British treasure and British blood. The country was drained, exhausted, dejected. The speech from the throne showed them that ministers were determined to persevere in spite of calamity, 
that the surrender of an army only gave them spirit to risk and lose a second, and the surrender of a second instigated them but to venture a third. The general voice of the people of England was against them, and still they persevered. They would cease to be the representatives of the people and become the representatives of the minister. The war carried on in the colonies and plantations of North America has proved ineffectual either to the protection of His Majesty's loyal subjects in the said colonies or for defeating the dangerous designs of our enemies. This leads to a second proposition. All further attempts to reduce the revolted colonies to obedience are contrary to the true interests of this kingdom, as tending to weaken its efforts against its ancient and powerful enemies. End quote. Another MP, Thomas Powis, seconds the motion, quote, that ministers should persevere in the mad plan of pursuing the phantom of conquest in America was not at all surprising to him. On the contrary, it was extremely natural, because to the war they owed their situations and their emoluments, and by a peace they must lose them. It was a war in which every conclusion was against us, in which we had suffered everything without gaining anything. We weakened no enemy by our efforts. We exhausted no rival by distressing ourselves. The minister had said one thing one day, and with grave faces said the direct contrary the next. It was now a war of this sort, then a war of that sort. Now a war of revenue, then a war of supremacy, now a war of coercion. This was not a time for men to group together or indulge in the narrow-minded distinction of party when every honest heart and hand in the kingdom should unite in one powerful body to avert the wreck with which this unhappy country was so imminently threatened. It was time, therefore, for Parliament to interfere and to prevent that total ruin which the measures of this administration could not fail to bring on. End quote. A Tory MP, Wellbore Ellis, sums up the government's position, quote, The House, in adopting the resolution, would be guilty of a political suicide. As to the withdrawing of the troops from America, it was a measure to which he could not consent. It had always been a favorite maxim of policy with this country to keep the war at a distance from home. This maxim could be pursued on the present war, by keeping the troops in America. He could not persuade himself that the gentlemen who supported the motions had maturely considered the consequence that would attend the carrying of them into a resolution of the House. If the hands of the executive power were in a manner bound up by a resolution of the House from acts of hostility against America, without any condition or previous negotiation with them for certain pacification, what could possibly prevent them from seizing on our possessions in the neighborhood of the continent? Nothing. On the contrary, from so weak a step as this now recommended would doubtless urge them to direct their utmost force, whence left unrestrained, to do us all the mischief they could. And we should have the mortification to see the French and Americans joined in the West Indies, and perhaps joined in the Channel. End quote. The debate continues into the wee hours of the night, and the peace measure is ultimately defeated by a vote of 220 to 179, with many members of Parliament either abstaining or not present. But a seed has been planted, 
and the anti-war faction is prepared to try again. On February 22, 1782, General Henry Seymour Conway, formerly a high-ranking colonial minister, quote, rose to make the motion of which he had given notice, that a humble address be presented to his majesty, that taking into his royal consideration the many and great calamities which have attended the present unfortunate war, and the heavy burdens thereby brought on his loyal and affectionate people, he will be pleased graciously to listen to the humble prayer and advice of his faithful commons, that the war on the continent of North America may no longer be pursued for the impracticable purpose of reducing the inhabitants of that country to obedience by force. In the present moment, when there were certain indications of a design to continue that war, when, as he had been credibly informed, there were preparations making for the next active, offensive campaign. In this moment, he thought it necessary to ask of the new secretary, meaning Wellbore Ellis, the new secretary of state for the colonies and the guy who had summed up the Tory position for the last vote, in this moment he thought it necessary to ask of the new secretary what was the design of the government, not with regard to particular operations, but to the general system. He wished to know what were the principles, what were the sentiments of this new minister respecting the American war. He trembled, lest he should another phoenix, springing from the ashes of his predecessor, Lord George Germain, and from him the American war should be renewed in all its former vigor. Were we with a new conductor to have a new plan, or were we to go on in the same manner as we had begun and continued so long, in the obstinate rejection of all advice which we could derive either from experience or disaster? End quote. And Secretary of State for the Colonies, Wellbore Ellis, responds, quote, As to the American War, it had always been his firm opinion that it was just in its origin nor could the events that had since occurred make him change that opinion. But he never entertained an idea, nor did he believe any man in that house ever imagined, that America was to be reduced to obedience by force. His idea always was that in America we had many friends, and that by strongly supporting them, we should be able to destroy that party or faction that wished for war and to assist our friends there in that desired object was, in his opinion, the true and only object of the war. Whether that object was now attainable was matter fit to be considered. That our friends in America were still numerous was a fact, for the truth of which he would not indeed pledge himself to the house, but he would nevertheless assure them that he believed it to be a certain fact. As to peace... No man could have a more earnest desire to see it restored than he had. And whatever it could be made with safety and honor to this country, he would most cheerfully concur with his majesty's ministers in establishing it. If the houses wanted a test of the intentions of ministry, respecting the future conduct of the war, a test had already been given. And that test was the vote that passed for the army of the present year. An army was lost last year, and no application had been since made to Parliament for another to replace it. He could not call the war in America the American War. Its true name was the French War, for if he was not greatly mistaken, 
the army under General Washington was fed, clothed, and paid by France. So that it was France, not the Congress, that was fighting in America. Now, if France might be fought in other countries as well as in France, if she was fought last war in Germany, he could not see any solid objection against fighting her this war in America. End quote. To this speech, Edmund Burke, one of the most famous Whig politicians of all time, delivers a blistering tirade. Quote, This hopeful contest, though it was to be continued, was no more to be considered as an American war. Its locality was nothing. Its being carried on in the colonies was nothing. The American war was to be considered as a French war. And we were to go on persecuting the Americans, not for the purpose of reducing the Americans to obedience by force, but for the purpose of reducing the French. What was the absurdity? Rather, what was the wickedness of this idea? In the beginning of the present session, the effect which the loss of Earl Cornwallis's army produced forced the ministers to give assurances to the House that they must contract the scale of the war, and that it would be conducted in future on a very different plan from what it had been. We will no more prosecute the American war. We will drop that entirely. We will have no further intention of reducing the Americans to obedience by force. But instead, here is the fine ministerial distinction and the new plan of delusion. We must prosecute the French war, which rages now in the fields of America. That under this pretext, every hostile and offensive operation that can be contrived for the distress and persecution of the people will be continued. From this new minister, we were to receive exactly the old system. Indeed, it might with truth be asserted that the late Secretary of State for the American Department though called up by a patent to the other house, was still to be found an effigy in his old seat. There he sat with all the plans of the American war thick upon him. On his political death, he hath bequeathed to the right honorable gentleman all his plans, projects, and measures, nay, his ideas after language and words. Not one scrap had he suffered to go into other hands, but all had devolved on this new minister. At this day, after a seven years' experience of the absurdity and impracticability of the contest, to be told that we were to go on. Not one ragged nor tattered fragment of an excuse to cover the design. That, at least, if men were to be seduced, there might be the grace of delusion in the business. No cover, no disguise, none but the miserable and ridiculous stratagem of giving a new name to the old story, to be persuaded that we had many and numerous friends in America. Secretary Ellis did not know it. He had no personal knowledge of the fact. What had the American war produced? What but peerages and calamities? What but insults and titles? Was there anything to give hope? Oh, yes. We must not only have hope, but confidence in ministers. Confidence. Could we have confidence in the men who still determined to prosecute this mad and impolitic war? It was impossible. 
Could we have confidence in this new minister, who seemed determined to tread in the footsteps of his predecessor? He had heard nothing of propositions of peace. He had found no traces of anything like negotiation for peace in his office. Oh, no. End quote. Again, debate goes on and on and on. When the final vote is tallied at 2 in the morning, there are 193 members in favor of the peace measure and 194 against. With many abstentions and absences, the peace party has lost by a single vote. So they decide to try again five days later on February 27th. General Henry Seymour Conway once again introduces the motion with similar arguments to the ones he used on February 22nd, adding that he has since spoken with several members of Parliament who weren't present for that vote, who are planning to vote for peace this time around. Then Thomas Pitt, a leading Whig politician and nephew of William Pitt the Elder, a former Prime Minister we've talked about, Pitt gets to the meat of the matter. Quote, He did not rise to enumerate the many urgent and forcible arguments that were urged the former night in support of this motion, because they had never been contradicted. He delivered it as his opinion that if the ingenuity of gentlemen on the other side had not been exerted to puzzle and perplex the meaning of the motion made on Friday last, it would have been carried unanimously or at least by so very considerable a majority that it would have approached very near to unanimity. In the last debate on the subject of the address, it had been urged that the object of the address was to recall the troops from America. But it had no such object. If it had, he certainly would have voted against it. Nor would he vote for that address, or for the present motion, if he thought that in voting for them, he exceeded the line in which the Constitution had pointed out for Parliament to pursue. He would not encroach upon executive power. He would not pledge Parliament to any measure which should take from ministers the responsibility annexed to their offices. At present, the war in America crippled all our exertions, and therefore he thought it his duty to vote for a resolution which held out a prospect of a peace that would enable us the more effectually to carry on the war against our ancient and natural enemies, end quote. By our ancient and natural enemies, Pitt means the French and the Spanish. Prime Minister Lord Frederick North argues, quote, If the object of the motion was peace, and an ardent desire to put an end to the war could produce that wished-for blessing, he made no doubt but unanimity would convey one general sense of the House on that subject. For his part, he would readily confess that peace was the object nearest his heart. The question with him was only how can peace be procured. There were two things to be considered with respect to the war. Was it the war in America or the war with America? It was only one of these two objects that gentlemen seemed too desirous to attain. For from all that he had heard, no one member had yet ventured to assert that the troops ought to be withdrawn from America. The end of the war was indeed what all parties looked to. But how was this to be brought about? He knew only of two means. 
by peace or by withdrawing our troops. The latter was a measure which, so far from having been recommended by any one gentleman, seemed to be completely condemned by all. And how was the former practicable? His objection to the motion did not arise from a want of sincere wishes for peace, but from an idea that the motion was more likely to retard than accelerate so desirable an event. No one had suggested any grounds on which peace could be made. There was but one other way of convincing the House that ministers did not intend to carry on the war, and that was that no army had been or would be sent out to replace that which had been lost, and that no more troops would be sent to America except such recruits as might be necessary to keep up our garrisons. If that could be deemed a pledge and satisfaction to the House, he was ready to give it. But if they suspected the sincerity, ability, or integrity of the servants of the crown, it was not by such a motion as the present that the House ought to express their backwardness to trust them any longer with the management of public affairs. They ought to address the crown to remove those ministers in whom they could not place confidence, and to appoint others in whom they could confide. If they were determined to take upon themselves to prescribe in what manner the war should be pursued, let them declare it. He had always said that the separation of America from Great Britain would be a heavy loss to the latter, but it would be a grievous misfortune to the former. If, as there was reason to believe, she had only changed masters, and that she had only changed masters was to be presumed because it could not be supposed that France was a knight-errant for liberty, but if France was to be reduced before America could treat, then he would contend, in opposition to the motion, that nothing could tend more to weaken our efforts against our inveterate European enemies than to keep our army in America, with their swords tied up by this declaration. He called upon them to oblige him only by voting according to the dictates of their own judgment, and totally to lose sight of every personal consideration to him. The removal of ministers was no punishment. End quote. Lord North is saying that this isn't just about the war. It's about Parliament's confidence in his government. He's saying that if they don't trust him to decide where and when to deploy troops, let them choose someone they do trust. The debate goes on, and at one in the morning the vote is taken. By a tally of 234 to 215, Parliament votes to end hostilities with the United States. True to his word, Lord North accepts this vote as a vote of no confidence and resigns a few weeks later, handing over the government to a leading Whig politician, the Marquess of Rockingham. Rockingham's term will only last a few short months since he dies of influenza in July of 1782, but he's succeeded by another British Whig, the Earl of Shelbourne. Regardless of who exactly is at the helm, the British ship of state has changed course. The government hasn't quite agreed to formally recognize American independence. The war against France and Spain rages on in the Caribbean and India along the coast of Africa, in the seas of Europe, and at the Rock of Gibraltar. Even in North America, P. 
Patriot and Loyalist forces continue to clash in low-level skirmishes along the frontier, along with Native Americans who are fighting on both sides. Assuming peace can be finalized, who will be the victor? And what kind of country will the U.S. turn out to be? In 1782, these are still open questions. But by voting to suspend hostilities with the United States in order to focus on fighting Britain's European rivals, Parliament has accepted U.S. independence in all but name. And that's why it's relevant. Hey everybody, it's Dan again, and I'm here to remind you that if you're only listening to relevant history, you're not getting all of my content. Every month, I release a video episode of a series called Dan's War College. This series covers historical battles, military units, weapons, trends, and other military-related topics, and you can get access to it for $5 a month on Patreon. In addition to access to the video series, patrons also get access to a private Discord channel for members only, and I do take episode requests from patrons. If you're interested in that and in supporting the show, which I very much appreciate, the Patreon link is in the description. Of course, there are other ways to support the show as well. The easiest is simply to share it with your friends, share it on social media, on Reddit, and on other platforms where people are looking for podcast recommendations. The audience grows by word of mouth, and every little bit helps. You'll also notice links to most of my sources in the episode description. These links allow you to buy the various books I have used for relevant history, and read the complete story for yourself. And the neat thing about these links is that they are affiliate links, so at no extra cost to you, I get a small percentage of what you spend on the book you were going to buy anyway. So it's a win-win scenario, and it helps the show. Finally, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach out on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Dan Toller Podcast. Or you can send me an email at Dan Toller Podcast at gmail.com. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.